Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together in fellowship and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see it. Let your spirit show us what you would have us to see from the scripture. In your son's name, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 32, starting at verse 34. Is not this laid up in store for me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come unto them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants. When he sees their power is gone and there is none left, none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they did trusted, which did eat of the fat of their sacrifice and drank of the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and, and be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and make alive, I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to the heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my gl glittering sword and my hand take hold of judgment, I will render the vengeance of, to mine enemies and shall reward them that hate me. Let's uh, go ahead and look at this. We got quite a bit to <laughs> cover in this. So he's continuing the song of Moses. And it's kind of been interesting. It's supposed to be a song. They're supposed to sing it to, you know, to themselves. And and really, what it is is, if you don't obey God, you're going to go into judgment, and God will discipline you. What a, you know, it probably never made it into the the, the top ten hit parade in, in their in their singing. Uh, you know, let's sing, let's sing the song of Moses. Uh, it was probably never in their top uh, top playlist. You know, because it is a kind of a depressing song. You know, because all it is is when when you disobey, and there's a lot of this when you disobey stuff, you're going to be judged. And uh, in verse 34 it says, Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? Their calamities, their, their sins and everything are being stored up and God's going to, to hold them accountable for what is due them. And you know, God does this. And we talk about how loving God is, and how merciful that he is, and he is. But he also has that point in time when he just steps up and says, I'm done. I'm done, and you're going to be judged for what you've done. Israel had it on at least two occasions where they were sent into captivity under Syria and Babylon, and then again in the Roman Empire when they were sent into captivity for the, for the time until they came back in the 1948. We've seen it through different countries that have been judged. Nebuchadnezzar was judged when, when he said, you know, isn't, you know, he'd already come to God, and he goes, this is my Babylon that I have created. And God says, you, know, you, you were warned, and now with your pride and your arrogance, you're going to be judged. And he got the mind of an animal for seven years. Okay? Uh, there is that point in time where God says, enough is enough, and brings judgment. Whether it's pain, like he's talking about through here, of physical actual wounding, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's in nations, it's, it's everything involved in the destruction of the nation. But he says, you're gathering up your judgment. And God is so merciful that if we repent, he scratches it all out. Jonah went to Nineveh and, he, and you know, his message was really, really nice. Uh, uh, repent in 40 days, you're gonna be destroyed. And they repented 
and God held off the destruction of Nineveh for over a hundred years. Over the, over the time when the kings would come along and, and turn to God, they would, God would bless them and he would hold off the judgment that was due them. David did not have all the judgment that was due him, but God did tell him because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that there were things that were going to happen. The sword wasn't going to leave his, his family and that, his, that part of the kingdom was going to be torn from his hands because of his sin. There was consequence for the sin. God's mercy still lasted. He goes, and then it goes, To me belongs mercy, vengeance, and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. So he says, God holds vengeance. Now, in several places, vengeance is mine, I will replay, God says. He doesn't want us trying to pay back people. And this is something we've really got to get hold of. Our flesh loves to be able to say, well, I got hurt. I'm going to make sure that they pay. You know, when I was young, my dad taught, you know, said, you don't start a fight, but you make sure that you finish it and win. You know, uh, and that's not really a biblical <laughs> mandate, but it is the world's mandate. You know, don't start the trouble, but by God, make sure you end the trouble with a, by being victorious. Uh, and, but here, God keeps saying, vengeance is mine. Our job is to love. It doesn't mean we get abused and let somebody keep abusing us. And in Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. There's a time for defense. There's a time for it. Not as often as we want it to be. But there is a time when you say it's just time to stand up. And you know, one of the things about it, usually if you just stand up, the pe most people will back down. The, this has been true most of the life. Most people who are being bullies and causing problems will stand down when they are stood up against. And it usually doesn't come to a fight. You know, every once in a while, they'll come to somebody who will fight, but, but there is even a time for that. There's a time for a war and time for peace, God says. And so he says, vengeance is his, and he will recompense. He will pay people for what they have done wrong. This is why I keep saying, God is our defender. And if, the more we let him defend us, the better off we usually are. Because I know, and I've said this many times, every time I try to defend myself, I make a big mess of it. Always. You know, but whether it's words or whatever, if I try to defend myself, I'll make a big mess out of it and make things worse. If I just let God do it, he'll, he'll pay back. And I've said it before, sometimes I think he pays back too harshly. I, I go, sometimes I wish that I had defended myself and not let God get involved because of how far some of God's discipline goes. Now God knows how far he's got a discipline. He knows what it's going to take for somebody to hear, pay attention. He knows sometimes he'll have to break up their marriage, take away their children, take away their health to try to get their attention. And how stubborn we can get at times. And I know I... I can be very stubborn at times with God. I'm getting better. But I've been very stubborn with God in the past. And he's had to do some pretty harsh things at times to try to get attention and say, I just want your attention. Would you stop trying to do things your way? And sometimes when people are harming us, God has to do some drastic things to get their attention. But he says, I will recompense. He says, their foot will slide in due time. The day of their calamity is hand. The things that shall come to them make haste. 
Now, God's make haste is a lot different than our make haste. Uh, he said that Jesus would return quickly, and that was over 2,000 years ago, or right at 2,000 years. And for us as humans, that's not very quick. But when you're God, who's from an eternal perspective, 2,000 years is not a long, long time. The entire existence of the world at 6,000 years is not a long time. And, and when we've been in heaven for thousands of years, we'll look back at the short time we live on earth and say, well, God, that, I sure thought that 60, 80, 70, 100, or 200, whatever, whatever we live was a long time. But we'll look back and say, wow, it was really nothing. You know, thank you. Thank you for your patience with me. And you know, in one sense, even for us, if we look back, how, have you ever looked back and, and said, wow, how quick things have gone? You, know, you have your child, they're a baby one day, and the next thing you know, they're graduating from college. Uh, and, it's, you know, and it doesn't, you know, you look, and it, it, if you look at day by day, it doesn't look like it's it, that, moving that fast, but you kind of look and you're going, when did you get this big? When did you get old enough to be Marian? When did you get old enough to, to graduate school? When did you, you know, when, when did you get old enough to retire right behind me? You know, it's, you know, time goes by so fast when we look at it in a very broad perspective. When we get to heaven, we'll look back on time and say, wow, it was nothing. You know, why was I so upset about this little bit of suffering God asked me to do for him for a short period of time, and now it's being rewarded in, in all of eternity? And, you know, we need to take that, that perspective. Whatever happens on this earth is, is nothing. Even if we were bedridden, you know, for all of our life, it would be nothing. You look at somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's you know, quadriplegic from age 17, who's now running a great ministry that cares for other injured people. Yeah. She does, you know, she'll tell you her life is not easy. And that wouldn't be easy. She can't get out of bed. She can't move herself. She can't, you know, feed herself. Uh, you know, she can move her head. And she needs help for everything, but God has used her in great ways. And I'm sure in eternity, when she gets her mobility back, she'll be looking at it. It was nothing. Even in those worst days, it was nothing. You know, we need to have that attitude. Even in our worst day, when we look back from heaven, it's going to be nothing. And it says, in due time, in due time. Psalms all over the place, you know, David was saying, you know, why, why are the heathen getting away with everything, God? I'm serving you and I really don't have nothing and, and they seem to have everything. We'd say, why, you know, God, why are all these wicked people seem to have everything? They've got the mansions, they've got the cars, they've got the, they've got the money, they've got the, you know, they've got the part, you know, entourage following them, you know, everything seems to be going good in their life and God goes, it'll come. It will come. They'll get their, they will get their reward that they're due. And if they're not his children, they'll get the reward they're due, which is death. And we need to be very careful. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, well, I just can't witness to them. They seem to have everything together. They might not listen to me. We need to be careful of that mentality because many of these people are just waiting for somebody to talk to them. They need to know the truth as much as anybody else, and maybe even more, because they're insulated from a lot of the problems. It says, the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he sees their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. You know, God, when we humble ourselves and repent, turns back much of what he intends to give us. And here it says, the Lord will judge his people and repent when 
he sees their power is gone. When they have humbled themselves, he will pull back. Do you realize, especially we as his children, do not get all the consequences we're due for the sin we do? Now, we don't understand. We think we were getting bad treated most of the time, but we get, if we got everything we deserved for our sin, we'd be in trouble. We'd be in big trouble. God turns back much of the consequences from our life. Much of it. He still lets some through so that, he knows, so that we know that, uh, that we deserve what comes our way. But he doesn't make everything come our way. And it says, when he sees that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left, he, he repents and turns back the wickedness. Josiah, young king, comes into Israel His father was totally wicked, and he follows God and turns back God's wrath on the people. We see Hezekiah do the same thing. We see Josiah. We see Solomon and David turning back God's anger from the people because they led the people in righteousness. He goes, and he shall say, where is their God, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings, let them rise up and help you and be your protection. You realize that if your faith and trust is not in God, he will say, all right, I'm going to let you, who you're having your faith in. And this could be very interesting in our day and age. In their day, it was just, you know, you're worshiping these rocks and stuff. You know, these, these stone pillars, these uh, metal, metal, metal trees and whatever, you know, they, they worshiped. But you know, in our day and age, if somebody's worshiping money, God will say, okay, let your money deliver you. And we think we're getting away with it at first because <laughs> we can buy our way out of some of our trouble. We can, we can buy the stuff we think will make us happy and then we just get to the end and it's, nothing's making us happy because it just doesn't fulfill. Somebody trying to get to the top of their industry, their business, they get there and they find out it's not everything they thought it was. And God says, okay, where's, you, you followed your God. You know, let your comfort you let your God protect you this is what God will do when you get to where you think you want to be God will say okay you wanted to trust in something other than me go ahead you thought your relationships with your your family was going to be what you needed okay let's see how they last when when bad things start happening we'll see how how long your 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 relationships will help you you thought your money was going to be enough you know now it's not wrong to have money but if all your hope is in your money, then it's wrong. We see many people who are never happy. They never have enough money. I believe it was Rockefeller who was asked, you know, how much money you need? And he goes, just a little bit more. Okay, more money than you can ever spend. I don't know if it was, you know, it might have been one of the other millionaires, but it was uh, just a little more. More money than he could ever spend in his lifetime, more money than his kids could ever spend in their lifetime. And he wanted more. Just a little more will make me happy. Just a little more. Money will never make us happy. Fame will never make us happy. If it did, we wouldn't see rich people getting drunk and, and, and strung out on drugs. We wouldn't see uh, athletes and stars, you know, movie stars and actors getting strung out and, and committing suicide because they would be happy. It doesn't bring happiness. It might for a little time, and we all understand that. If you've ever bought a new car, even if it's a used car, newer than what you had, you, you're all excited about it until the novelty wears off, and then it's just not enough. If you've ever owned a new new car, it's like, wow, I got a really nice car, and then somebody puts a ding in it, you know, 
two days after you have it and it's no longer, no longer happy. And even if it's not two days, it's going to be at some point where something's going to break down and it's just not the same or some newer model comes out that has more, more than what yours does and you're no longer happy. God says, you know, let your God, you know, when you're following somebody else, he's going to let you depend on your God, which is why we need to stay focused on God in everything. Open our day with prayer. Open our day with reading the word. Asking God, what do you want me to do, God? And because you will become like what you worship. And if you don't believe that's true, you know, we have other statements. Uh, birds of a feather flock together. Bad company corrupts good, good, mor good morals. Whatever you want to look, you will become like what you worship, what you follow. We see people who get into gangs, and they start into gangs just because they want the protection of the gang, and they're usually fairly good people. And you watch them, the more they hang out with the gang, the more they become like the gang members. The more somebody starts getting into fornication and adultery, the more they start participating in it, and the less they start thinking it's a problem. The more they start curving anything away from God, the more they become like that because their focus and their worship is on that and they become like what they worship. It becomes what's most important to them. When we're worshiping God, he will be what's most important to us and we will become like him because he's what's most important. And then he says uh, in verse 39, see now that I, even I am he and there is no God with me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. I lift up my hand to the heaven and I said, I, I say, I live forever. This is God saying, I am God and there is no other. And he goes, basically, I do what I want. Do you realize God is sovereign? He is king over all kings. He can do with us what he wants. And he's not answerable to anybody for what he does because he owns us. And in uh, the prophets, he said, you know, go to the potter's house and watch the potter. He goes, I'm the potter. I make the vessel the way I want it to be made. And for what use that I want it to be made. In other words, if I want it to be the serving dish that's all covered in gold and silver, then I make a serving dish. If I want you to be the chamber pot, <laughs> I make you into the chamber pot. And that's what you're made because that's what he makes us. Yeah. We are what God has designed us to do. Now, he knows what our decisions would be. He knows what we're going to decide to do. And that plays part in what he's going to do. But he makes us what he wants us to be. And it says, you know, there is no other God like me. I kill and I make a life. How many times has God killed your, your flesh, killed your desire for sin so that you will really be alive? He puts us through pain so that we will be able to minister to other people. Have you ever gone through something and then you realize a year or two, three years later, you went through it just so you could minister to somebody else who's going through the same thing or something similar that what you did? Oftentimes, he'll do that to us. Make us a little bit more sympathetic with them. Because if we had never failed, if we had never had any hardships, then we would look at everybody and go, what's wrong with you? All you got to do is be like me and, and follow God correctly, and you wouldn't have any hardships. We would be bold, uh, bold arrogant, and obnoxious with people. Well, I don't know why you're having such a problem. All you got to do is trust God well enough. So God makes sure that we have something that makes us fall so that we will be humbled and say, you know what? If I can fall, 
I can show humility and humbleness to somebody else who's falling. And it's very important for us to understand no matter how close we get to God and how good we get, we still can fall. And we've seen it over and over again where somebody who looks very spiritual, very strong, falls because they get arrogant, they get, get self-righteous, and they end up thinking they can get away with things, and they fall. And God is saying, don't do this. Stay focused on me. He goes, he goes I, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And we look at somebody like Job. You know, Job is a great example. You know, Job did nothing wrong, and God's testimony was he's a perfect and upright man who hates evil. And Satan goes, well, I bet I can get him to fall. Now just, get, just take the hedge around him, God, and I can make him fall. And God allowed it. Job did not deserve anything that happened to him in many senses. But God used it for Job. And we've talked about this. Job believed in a prosperity gospel. He believed that you honor God, you got, that you would be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you just honored God. He believed that riches were, were part of the righteousness. He believed that it rained on the righteous and didn't rain on the unrighteous and all these other things. So even though God says he's a righteous man, he is following after me and he has been rewarded because of it, we're going to teach him some lessons in the process as well. We're going to let him learn. Satan, you're going you're to try to make him fall, but Job is going to learn some, some hard lessons and it's going to make him even softer toward the, the people that need help. And Job helped the poor. He helped the poor a lot, and that's what it says. He helped the poor. Even though he was accused by his friends that he didn't, he was always helping. And that's what he said, poor comforters you are. At least I cried with people and I did some... I tried to help them. You're, you're just try, you know, miserable trying to make me feel bad. God says, I hurt. Nothing will stop it once I, once I let it go. Until he stops it. And this is something that we want to look at. And it says, he lifts up his head to heaven and says, I live forever. You know, we need to understand that God has always been. He's existed before time. He's existed for all of time. And he will exist all of future time. And because time is not his element, he's in all time at the same time. Okay? God is not limited to time like we are. We, we, we're limited by time. We can only interact with time going forward. God has no problem. He just looks at time and he's looking at it from way up here. You know, if this is, if this is the beginning and this is the end, we're looking down on this pen... And we go, okay, I see the beginning and I see the end. That's how God sees it and everything in between. At the same moment. You know, he has no problem. When he says something's going to happen, when he gives a prophecy, it is not really a prophecy because he goes, I already know what's happened. I already see that it has happened. In his case, he says it has happened. Not that it will happen. In God's mind, even though it, from our perspective it has not happened, from God's perspective, it has already happened, and it will definitely happen. So when he makes a prophecy, it's no big deal for God, because he knows that it's already done. Now, I do not believe Satan has that a capability. Otherwise, he would go back and undo some of the things that he had done. He is a created creature that is confined by time, not like God who's outside, uncreated. And this is a wonderful thing. When we step out of this world into heaven, we will be in a different time frame. 
will be in the heavenly time frame. The time as we know it will no longer exist. But in Revelation, it tells us that the tree of life in heaven produces fruit in its seasons. Different fruit in its seasons. There's some form of time in heaven. It's just not the same time we have in this world. And probably expands thousands, if not millions of years, you know, what we would consider millions or thousands of years would be a very short time in heaven. But we see God in a different time frame, a different dimension would be the term we would use. Uh, and we see that all of this is happening. He says, I live forever. Whatever's out there, he's above that. If there's time in heaven, like I believe there is, God's above that time. If there's some other time above that, he's above that time. He, he is above anything that's out there. And this is why I say, no matter how big you think God is, how all-knowing you think God is, how strong you think God is, you're too small. Okay? And as Christians, as baby Christians, we start out with a pretty small God, really. You know, he's, he's strong, he saved me and all this, but you know, we start out with a very small God. The more we get into this word, the more we get to experience his love, the more we get to understand who it is, the bigger he gets. And the bigger he gets, we're still too small. I mean, I can picture a very large God, and I'm still too small in how big I think he is. And I see him covering all the dimensions. However many dimensions are out there, he encompasses all those dimensions. And I still have a too small a God in my, in my thought process. And I have a bigger God than most people do in my mind. I have a stronger God than most people, and he still, I have too, so, too small a picture of God because he is so much more than anything we can fathom because we are finite. We can't even, you know, we truly can't even picture infinity or, or eternity. You know, how big is eternity? Picture eternity. You know, you know, picture eternity, no matter how big you think it is, then you can multiply it by eternity and you still have eternity. Okay, uh, it's a number that we can't, in our brains can't even begin to understand. We can't begin to really understand and comprehend things like tr trillions, which our debt is in a country. You know, we can't figure out that. That's the too big a number for us to really can. And people will talk about, well, you take the money and you go back and forth from the earth to the moon, uh, however many times it is, you know, and you know, it's a bigger, even that's a bigger number than you can comprehend. You can go to the sun and back, you know, so many times and, you know, none of those numbers mean anything to us. You know, it kind of gives us some kind of picture, but it really doesn't help us understand it that much. And so God is infinite. Well, how big is infinite? Bigger than anything you can comprehend. And whatever you comprehend, multiply it by another infi infinity and you're, and you're still too small. So whatever, however big you have, multiply it by that, by that size, that strength, that power, and you're still too small. <laughs> so that's our God. He lives forever. His strength is unending. And his power is more than anything we can have. You know, think about this. You know, God does not need anything. If he ever ran out of stuff, he'd just create more stuff. You know, think about that. You know, God needs, God, if God needed money and he doesn't, but if he did, he'd just go out and he'd create more stuff. You know, oh, I need more stuff? Here we go. We'll just create it. <laughs> Created everything in this world. So if he needed something, if his, if his people needed more than he had created, he'd just create more. You know, he could create a gold, gold, gold strike for them. He could create an oil well right on their property. He could do whatever he needs to make them get whatever they need to, to survive. 
that's how powerful he is, how big he is. Uh, verse uh, 41, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold of my judgment, I will render vengeance on them, on my enemies, and will reward them that, that hate me. He says, I wet, sharpen my sword. Yeah. Uh, he says, I, I, if I wet my sword or sharpen my sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance. Basically, he says, when I take my sword out. Ezekiel, we've been reading a whole chapter that's all about the sword of God coming out and doing judgment. And he uses the same term, glittering sword. And we, we talked about it in, in Ezekiel, how the glittering sword, have you ever read a epic novel of, a, of the hero in the middle of battle or uh, they'll always talk about their sword glittering and shining as they, as, they, as they attack the enemy because they're the hero. That's the picture that God's using here. I'm coming in and my, my sword is shining. My sword is, is bright. You're going to know that it's me carrying that sword. You're going to watch it do the damage. And that's the picture. He goes, he's, he's saying, I'm the hero. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to be victorious. And then he goes on and says here, and will reward them that hate me. Now this reward does not be in use the way we normally think of reward. Okay, This is just mean they get what, what's coming to them. All right, so we would say consequences or retribution probably in a stronger one. But when you think about this, the wages of sin is death. That's the reward that we get for sin. Now, we don't really think of that as a good thing, but it's, this is what he's saying. When I, get, I will reward them. I'm going to give them what they deserve. I'm going to give them what they've asked for. Retribution would probably be a better word in, in an English translation, and especially in our day. Uh, or uh, what they deserve. He goes, they're going to get what they deserve eventually. And God moves against them. He says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that which the blood of the slain and the captives from the beginning of the revenge upon the enemy. God is going, when God goes to war, he says he doesn't stop. You think about this, arrows drunk with blood. Can't really picture what that would be. I mean, how many times do you use an arrow in the battle in the first place? Usually once. But also in the middle of a battle, when you ran out of arrows, you would try to gather up other arrows, which would not be, which could be chipped, dented, and bent or whatever because they'd already been used. But uh, you think, I don't know if you understand during this period of time, these guys, when they would fire off arrows in the air, they would not aiming them like we do, you know, as we think of it. They were more like a machine gun type thing. And what they would do is they would stick about six arrows in front of each archer. And they would say, fire. And if you've seen some of the movies where there would be a rain of arrows coming down on people, that is legitimate. They would have 50 to 100 ar archers, and they could launch all six arrows in a minute. So you'd have 300 to 600 or 3,000 to 6,000 arrows coming at you in the air. And they, if, you, if you filled the air with that many arrows, it would be like firing a machine gun at somebody. You don't have to aim very well to hit things with a machine gun. As long as you're aiming in the direction that the people are at, you'll hit something. And that's the way they were with the arrows. It literally, it would rain arrows. And this is what God says, my arrows will be drunk with blood. Because I'm going to fire them and people are going to get, you know, when, when I start firing, I'm going to rain the arrows down on them. They're going to be hit. 
And he goes, my sword will devour the flesh. You know, and it says, from the beginning of the re revenges of the enemy. And this is just the beginning. Yeah. We're talking about pretty harsh conditions. And he says, this is the beginning. Okay, I'm raining down arrows. I'm cutting up the flesh with my glittering sword. I'm, I'm the hero that's going to be victorious. And you can see my sword. And he goes, and this is just the beginning. We think about this. God moving. When he takes out Jericho, he destroys the, he has them destroy the entire city. He takes their defenses down. He brings down in another battle, he brings 300 pound hailstones upon the enemy to help them win, help Israel win. Now, I can't even fathom a 300 pound hailstone. Now, uh, where will you hide from that? I don't think this building could stand, withstand a hit from a 300 pound hailstone, even on the walls. <laughs> Okay, much less the ceiling. The ceiling would collapse, no problem. A car being hit by a 300-pound hailstone would be crushed. And God uses hailstones in some of his battles to destroy the enemy. God, when he comes out, in another battle, a single angel kills 170,000 opponents of Israel in one night. One angel. When God moves in judgment, he moves in judgment. And he says, all that I'm describing is just the beginning. Because when I move against Israel, it will just be the beginning. And he saw just that. When they went into captivity in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, it was just the beginning. They went into captivity. Thousands lost their lives. Another many thousands went into captivity. And they stayed there for 70 years until it was time to come back. Then they went into captivity under Rome. They rebelled against Rome and God judged them. And they went into captivity from 70 AD until 1948. Long time that they were in captivity because of their disobedience. And God says, this is the way it's going to be. The book of Revelation is all about God moving against this world. Not just to be mean to people. Yes, it's going to be discipline. Yes, people are going to be hurt. But the ultimate goal of God is to bring them to repentance. And that is God's reason for hard times, is to bring us into repentance. Because he knows that hard time now leading to repentance is better than an eternity in hell. And we've got to really understand that. When things bad are happening to us, God is trying to say, I need you to serve me. Serve me, not other gods. And we look at this, and it says, this is the beginning. Verse 43, rejoice, O you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversary and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Rejoice, because God will avenge. Yeah. It seems like God is so slow sometimes, but eventually he does act upon the people. When the people of Israel are going to go into the promised land. They're told to kill all of the natives of, of the Canaanite lands. All the Hittites, the Pezzites, the, the Jebusites, and all those other ites that are in that land are to be killed. Why? Because 430 years earlier, God had given the message of repentance through Moses, Isaac, and Jacob, and told them they needed to repent, and they never repented. They never followed God. And they had gotten so evil that they were so depraved and deprived 
that God said, I want them all gone. All of them. Destroy all of them, including the animals. Why were the animals included? Because the animals had been ruined from their depravity. All right? The animals, through bestiality, had already been, been compromised as well for their health. So we see God saying, I want everything gone. I'm going to purify the land, and you're going to be, Israel, you're my tool to purify this land. And if you don't obey me and you get like them, I will send nations in to take you out of the land. And we see that they do the same thing. Over and over again, we see them doing the same thing and the same depravity coming upon them. And God says, I will move, I will come out, and I will, will have mercy on those that I'll have mercy and vengeance on those that I'll have vengeance on. Verse 44, And Moses came and spoke all the words of this song in the ears of the people, he and Josiah, the son of Nun. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all of Israel, and he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you, which you shall command your children to observe to do, all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life, and through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over Jordan to possess it. So Moses gives them the song. You know, we, we spent 43 verses talking about the song of Moses. <laughs> and now he tells them, he go, tells them all the words, and he, he meets with Yoshia or Josiah, which is Joseph, <laughs> or Joshua. He, so he meets with, he and Joshua now are standing up. And remember, Joshua is going to be the next leader. Joshua has been the general of the army up till this point. He's the one that has stood with Moses all through the wandering. Wherever Moses went, Joshua could be found really close in most cases. He was with, when Moses would go to the t tabernacle of the meeting or the, or the tabernacle later on, Moses, uh, Joshua would be with him. Joshua, uh, Joseph, <laughs> get this right. Joshua was right there being groomed to be the leader. And he's, and he's with him now as they're getting ready. And God says, listen to him. Listen, people. You know, and then Moses made an end of the speaking and of these words, and he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. The most important thing for us as parents is to teach our children godliness. Oh, it's so important. You know, we are just one generation from losing godliness altogether if we don't do our job doesn't mean that they will always be righteous when we do our job. There's, they have their choices. They will be. But, you know, we also want to make sure when we stand before God, God, I did the best job I could. We, we opened the Bible. We shared the Bible. I took them to church. I, I, I gave them good education. I, I taught them God's word. And I've said one of the greatest things I remember my dad doing, whenever we had a question, he would usually take us to the Bible and say, this is what God says. Yeah. What a, you know, how does a teenager argue with their, with their parent when they're taking them to God's word? Uh, Dad, I'm just not sure I really believe God's word in this situation. Uh, it, it had a very powerful impact. I tried to do it often with my kids. Let's see what God says about this. Let's look and see what God is saying. You know, and this is our job. We're to teach our children to follow God. We're to teach our grandchildren to follow God. Especially if our children are teaching our grandchildren to follow God. We need to teach our grandchildren. And if it makes our children upset, tough. 
because we're still responsible to help our grandchildren. We're to teach our nephews, our nieces, our cousins, you know. We need to help our family grow in Christ and lift him up. That doesn't mean we pro- uh, preach at him every time we see him. No, but when we see things, you know, you know, how do you think God thinks of that situation? You know, why do you believe the way you did? I used to do that to my niece and nephew all the time when I first moved to, to Arizona. I would go, why do you believe that? Yeah. Well, my teacher said, well, but why do you believe it? Why do you think it's true? Because I don't believe it's true, but why do you think it's true? Making them think, making them struggle through what is it that you believe. You don't have to be preachy at them. It can be really simple. Well, that's an interesting thing. Why do you believe it? Why do you believe the way you believe? You know, we expect Christians to be able to defend what they, what they believe. You know the world can't defend what they believe in most cases, and if you challenge them, they'll usually just be insulting to you back. Yeah. But our job with our family should be just simple. Well, that's interesting. Why do you believe that? Why? Why do you, why do you believe in evolution? Well, then I teach her, well, but why? Where's your scientific, you know, defend it. Tell me why. And, and let them try to come up with why they believe. Why do you believe it's okay to sleep with whoever you want? <laughs> and take the, take the consequences of all the sexually transmitted diseases and all the emotional scarring that it does. Why? You know, ask them these questions. Don't be afraid of You don't have to preach to them. And they then turn around, well, why do you believe what you believe? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you why I believe what I believe. And they will probably regret it real quick. But you know what? They'll forget and they'll ask you again and again and again until they realize at some point it'll get stuck in their mind that you're always going to go back to what God says. But because they don't have a reason and a, and a standing ground, they don't understand that we have a reason and a standing ground. And they'll challenge it sometimes. They'll ask you why. And then you just say, this is what God says. This is what God says. And you don't have to preach at them. You just say, this is what God says, and give them the verses. And let God's word speak. God, the power of God's word is amazing. <laughs> to let God speak through his word, he says his word does not return void. And I was reading a book this week, just a glancing through, and it was talking about, as we're teaching children, how many Bible stories do we avoid teaching children because they're too graphic in their minds, and yet we teach them other stories that are just as graphic. And they were talking about Cain and Abel. How many, how many times do we skip over Cain and Abel because Cain kills his brother, and yet we'll teach them all about David killing Goliath and, and chopping Goliath's head off? Now, what's the difference? Nothing. We'll talk about you know, how do we sanitize the story of Noah and the ark with our children? You know, Noah built this great big book, uh, boat. Uh, God filled it with animals. The rain filled, killed everybody. And then they got off the, off the ark, and, and then we kind of leave it at that. Now, we don't ever talk about the trillions of people who died in those floodwaters. And so the kids don't understand that sin has consequences because we sanitize the story. We sanitize the story of Jesus dying on the cross so often. And I have no problem trying to make people see what Jesus went through. Being whipped with the flagellum with the guards that used it trying to take out big chunks of skin and flesh out of his body usually they would take bets on who could get the biggest chunk out and they would pick up the chunks and measure them and see who got the biggest chunk out it was a game for these guys and it was a brutal game for them 
and he took that punishment for us. Then after he'd do into all that, they put a crown of thorns on him with two-inch thorns and pounded it onto his head. Put a sack over his head and pounded his face. He went through all this pain and then was put on a cross. And the cross was not a nice place to be. It was a rough, hard wood. And they would put him on there and to breathe, you had to push up against, against this rough cross driving splinters into your back so that you could catch a breath. And after you'd driven these splinters into your back and put pain on your feet, nerve that the nails were then, you let yourself fall, driving splinters back the other direction. And you fell back on nails that were in the nerve endings and driving you, you know, and then you would convulse when those nerves got hit. And he suffered that way for us. We need to understand that what God paid for us was not cheap. Now, oh, you got nailed to the cross. Okay, yeah. No, it was a horrific death. Painful death. Designed to be as painful as they could possibly make it. And they were good at it. They were good at making that pain. And he says, teach your children. Give us 27. It is, not in, it is not a vain thing for you because it is your life. Through this thing you shall prolong your life in the land, whether you go to over Jordan to possess it. It is not a vain thing to believe and trust in God. Have you ever wondered, how many times have you wondered, of, should I obey God in this or should I just do, do it what I think sounds good? You know, we've all done that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have sinned. God, I just don't know that if your word is the right way to live in this particular situation. Uh, God, it doesn't seem that if I tell the truth that it's going to be very good for me. There, there's going to be a lot of bad things if I tell the truth. So I think, the, I think a lie at this time would be the right thing, God. God says it's not a vain thing to, tell, to tell the, you know, be obedient, tell the truth. And it's kind of amazing because we teach our kids to always tell the truth, and yet as adults, so how many times do we lie? For the same reason that our kids lie, to try to stay out of trouble. How many times have we lied? No, I don't know anything about how that, that item got broken in the back room of the store. I don't know who took the box of uh, chemicals and we, knew who, well, we know who did it. You know, well, I don't know what happened there. Why? Because I don't want to be involved. And God's saying, it's not a vain thing to follow him. Being truthful. The other day, I, I was asked to tell something and I go, as long as I can get say the way you want, I can, but then somebody's going to look at somebody else and take, take them the test because it was like she wanted to talk to her class and she wanted me to hold her class back and just say there's other people with longer tests and there were other people with longer tests. But one guy came in and saw somebody taking the same test as he was taking and said, well, what do you mean? And I'm going, well, your teacher wants you to in your class. <laughs> and then the teacher got all upset at me because I made her look bad, but I could not be deceptive in that. You know, I had no other reason to tell them. At that time, she just says, go ahead and take them. <laughs> I'm going, okay. I'd... But don't ask me to lie. I don't, I don't do lying. I try not to lie. I don't even like to try to bend the truth <laughs> because that's lying to me. I had enough trouble just saying, oh, these other students have longer tests, and many of them did, but not all of them. And I was getting to a place where I couldn't even use that excuse anymore. <laughs> So I did, you know, I was coming down to the place where I had to just say, you know, your teacher wants to talk to you for, for a couple minutes. But, you know, how many times in our world do we try to live by the world standard? 
instead of God's standard. And there's always a penalty for it. There's always a problem with it. Verse 48. And the Lord spoke unto Moses that self same day, Get you up unto the, this mountain of Abraham, unto Mount Nebor, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho, and behold the land of Canaan, which I give unto you unto the children of Israel for a possession. And die in the mount whither you go up, and gather unto your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered unto his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go thither unto the land which I give unto the children of Israel. Moses was told that he was not going to go into the promised land. And we've been talking about that for quite a while. Why? Because he was supposed to speak to the rock to give water. And he got so mad at the people because of their murmuring that he struck the rock. And he said, must I bring forth water from this rock? And he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And he destroyed the picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus was struck once and to deliver water of salvation. And ever since then, it has been, we ask for the water of washing of regeneration. He has not been crucified every time somebody needs help. And Moses' judgment was that he was not going to go into the promised land. And as I've said, I believe it was more because he never repented of it, because he kept telling the people, it's your fault that I'm not going into the land. He never admitted that he was at fault. But he says, after he tells this thing, he lifts up Joshua, and God says, you're to go up to Mount Nebor, and there you're going to die. He goes, but before you die, I'm going to show you the land, the promised land. So he gets to see it. Probably supernaturally. I'm sure God took him up there and he showed him a supernatural sight of the land. Because yeah, I'm sure it was more than just overlooking it. I think God gave him some kind of telescopic view of it. Here's this, here's that, here's this, here's this. It's a really wonderful land. If you hadn't been disobedient, you would be going into it. But you're going to get to see what you've spent your whole life trying to get the people to. And it says that he was to give up his life on Mount Nebor. And we're going to see it happening. He's got one more, one more thing to do. He's going to bless the people before he dies. And then he's going to go to Mount Nebor. But we look at this, and we're going to repeat it later on. But in the book of Jude, it says that the body of Moses was taken by God and buried. The people have no idea where his body's buried. And you know what? Probably a very good move on God's part. Because if they knew where his body was buried, there would probably be pilgrimages to the, tem- to the, to the sepulcher of Moses even by the Jews or for, as a people who aren't supposed to do it, just as they tend to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know where that, that gravesite is, and they will go visit it because that's where the founding fathers are buried. But right now, the UN decided it belongs to the Palestinians and the Muslims because they also claim <laughs> But you know, it's the only land that Abraham bought was that tomb. That land belongs to them from the farthest back, and God has traced his people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's who owns that land. So for the world to give it to the Muslims is totally wrong. It is a wrong decision. It is land that Abraham purchased and passed to Isaac, who passed it to Jacob. 
So that land is something that is by birthright Israel's. The only piece of land they ever bought ahead of time. You know, it's amazing that when, Mo, when Abraham died, he, God said, everywhere that you step is yours. And the only thing he owned was one little, one little plot of land with some trees and a, and, a, and a cave to be buried in. When Isaac died, he had been given the same promise. Everywhere you step is going to be yours. And he owns one little piece of land with a cave in it and some trees. Jacob was given that same promise. And when he dies, he owns one piece of land with some trees with a... With a with a cave in it to be buried. And then God finally gives them all the land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's foot touched. And only one time in history have they owned all their land, and that was in the time of David and Solomon, when they owned the land all the way from, from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, down all the way down to, to Egypt, and all that desert area in between. Most of the time, they have not owned the land that is theirs. No. Well, God says it's going to be returned to them, but no, in the, in the contract, all their land was not given to them. They were given literally just... No, no, no. The land's to God's going to give them their land back, yes. Uh, during the Millennial Kingdom, they will actually be exactly what they were told because Jesus will rule the world from, Egypt, uh, from Israel, from Jerusalem. And they will have everything that they've been promised. No. God, Jesus is going to come at the last battle. He's going to have a sword from his mouth. He's going to kill all the enemies that are coming against it. The over 100 million people that are you know, gathered up against Israel, he's going to kill them all, and, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And he's going to rule in perfect peace for a 1,000 years. So yeah, he's, you know, technically, yes, there's a battle. Uh, it's just like the battle that, where he kills 170,000, the angel kills 170,000 soldiers in one night. You're alive one moment, you're dead the next. Uh, that'll be how fast that battle will be. He'll come down, he'll descend, he'll touch Mount Olive. Every, the enemies will be wiped out. Mount Olive will split. Waters will flow just as, just as we're told they will. Uh, the Dead Sea will be made alive by the, the living water coming out of Mount, Mount Olivet. It'll split east and west, uh, north and south, and water will, f will flow to both directions, and Jesus will rule for a thousand years. Satan will be released for one last hurrah. He will get an army of people against God, and he will be defeated in the last battle. The, the, then we'll have uh, the white throne judgment, where all the, all the dead and without Christ will be judged and will be thrown into to, 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 uh, the lake of fire for eternity including hell will be thrown in there, all the demons all, and Satan and his minions and all the people that rejected Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire after they've all been forced to de declare Jesus is Lord. Even Satan will be forced to bow and declare Satan is, <laughs> Jesus is Lord. And everybody who says, well, I will never admit that there's a God or I will never worship God will be forced to admit before they're cast into hell Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We will do it willingly because we've chosen to. Every other person standing before the white throne judgment will be forced to do so. Yes. He, they, before they go into hell. Huh? But that won't save them. It's too late at that point. They've made their decision. They're, they're going to... They're, because... That is what James tells us. You know, you believe that Jesus 
is, Lord, you do well. The demons believe, but it's not a belief that leads to salvation. It's not putting your whole trust in God. And this is, what, this is why Jesus says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, because they're going to say, they're going to say Jesus is Lord. They might even read their Bible. They come to church every Sunday. They might even come Sunday night, Wednesday night, every revival, every Bible study. But they have never put their whole trust in Christ. And this means everything. Without him, there is no hope. If you're not living that way with him, you have not put your trust in him. If you're not living in Hosea that says, if it wasn't for Jesus, I have no hope, then you don't have the right salvation. You don't have the right trust. You don't have the right belief. It's like jumping out of the airplane with the parachute. You know, you trust that the parachute is going to keep you. Now, you might say, well, I, I think I can fly. Well, if you don't pull the ripcord on that parachute and you think you can fly, you're going to pay the consequences when you get to the bottom, even though you put a parachute on. Okay? Um, well, it, we, and I also talk about it when you're doing repelling. There comes that point in time when you put your whole trust on the rope. You know, if you're screwing a vertical or a negative descent, there's a point where every bit of your trust has to be on a skinny, tiny rope that you're going, I sure hope this rope is actually going to hold my weight. And I remember the first time I did repelling, and it's like, you want me to do what? And I didn't weigh near as much as I do now. You know, but you're going backwards down this, down this, and you're holding on to a rope. And if that rope doesn't hold, you're, you're out of luck. You're, you're dead. It's so weird. That's the only part of climbing. Were you grabbing hold of something and holding something? But that point where you put all your trust in that rope. But that is the, that, that's the greatest example, but it doesn't work for anybody who's never repelled other than to watch it. But there is that point where you must say, either this rope is going to work or I'm going to fall along, you know, however, however far it is I'm going to fall. That is the trust we have in Jesus. God, I have no other hope. If, you're not, if you haven't told me the truth, then I'm damned. And that is what we put our trust in. And I'll tell you right now, many people who claim to be Christians do not have that kind of hope and trust in God. They're hedging their bet. Well, I said my prayer, and if he doesn't work, oh, I've got this other thing over here. If it, if it doesn't work, I've got this thing over here. If you're hedging your bet, you're not putting your whole trust in him. Your trust must be such as if he fails to keep his word, it's all over. I know that he's going to keep his word because of how much he's kept his word in this lifetime. What makes us capable of doing Choice. Just absolute choice, knowing there's no other way. Being absolutely confident. Huh? If you've trusted him completely, you may have moments when you have to struggle with it, but you should never be in a place where you know that have any hope in anything else. Uh, and when you're a young Christian, you're going to have those moments where, do I trust him in this situation? Do I trust him in this situation? The more mature we get with Christ and the more we've seen him be successful in all of our areas of our life, should make it so that we say, okay, God, you were faithful here, you were faithful here, you were faithful here, you were faithful here, I trust you. 
I have no other hope. And I know I have no other hope. Because I know how awful my sin is and that I deserve punishment. And if, there, if Jesus has lied to, to me about him being my redeemer and my salvation, I'm in trouble. But I know that he hasn't because of how faithful he has been in my day-to-day walk. And it's been a long, quite a while since I've gotten to the place where I don't understand or trust him. But again, it's 46 years of walking with him. It's easier, it gets easier and easier to be able to put your trust in him. But it is ultimately a choice. I choose to do it. I choose to trust. I choose to obey. I choose to surrender. I choose to climb up on the altar and let him crucify my flesh. <laughs> okay? And I choose to stay there as he does it. <laughs> when, when it's certain, go, God, it really hurts. You know, are you almost done? <laughs> and I go, God, I'm going to stay here. Help me stay here. We still climb off. I still, I still climb off every once in a while. God, it was just too much pain. I'm not ready for it. And then eventually I'll get back on and say, okay, God, let's do it all over again. But it comes down to a choice. I choose to obey. I choose to honor. I choose more often than not just to say, God, I want you to crucify me. God, I want you to change me. And again, the more I worship him, the more I become like him, and the more I crucify my flesh, and the more I have trust in him. When we get saved, do we fully understand what we did? No way. I've been walking with him 46 years, and I still don't fully understand what I, what I did to get saved. All I did was go before him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. And help me to live the right life. And that was about how much I understood as a, as a 10-year-old. And when I told everybody out there that I met that they need to know Jesus, they go, how do you do it? I go, I don't know. Come to church with me Sunday and we'll, go find, uh, we'll let them tell you how to do it. Because all I know is I said I followed them in a prayer that I did, but I knew my life had changed. I knew God had changed my life. Didn't know exactly what he did. Didn't know how to tell others about it, but I got a lot of people to come to church that first week. <laughs> the, the bus driver pulled up and there was a whole lot of people standing out there waiting to get on the bus. Why? Because I didn't know how to tell them, but I knew that God had changed my life and I wanted them to have the same experience. All my friends, all my friends that normally would be playing football with all week long, weekend long were at church with me. But that's what God says. We step forward in what we know. We step forward in the trust that we have. And he's not going to ask you to put all your trust in him on the very first time that you do it. But he is going to say, do you have any other trust? What are you putting your trust in? And over the years, we should be saying, I have no other hope. And I'm going to tell you, I know there is no other hope other than Christ. If it wasn't for what he did on the cross and accepting us, I would be going to hell. But I know that I know that I'm in a relationship with him. He comes in, he indwells with us. Now, if only verse you know is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will answer and and ask me in, I will come in and sup with him. If that's the only verse you know, then do it. (laughs) Ask him to come in. God, I'm going to trust you. You love me so much, I'm just going to confess and I'm going to know. I'm going to trust in you. You If I'm trusting in works, I'm trusting in the wrong things. If I'm trusting in the good things that I can do for him, I'm trusting in the wrong things. And I better evaluate my relationship with him and say, do I trust him? Because my works aren't going to do me a bit of good. Yes, they've got great reward. And yes, they've got good benefit as in the consequences that they bring, but they're not going to get me in heaven. And they're not going to, Jesus, God's not going to sit there and go, well, you know, you did really good. You, you did 90% really good works and Jesus' blood will cover the rest of it. 
That's not how it works. Jesus' blood covers all of it. And if it wasn't for his blood, none of it would be any good. And the good things that I do through the power that he gives me are what he rewards me with in heaven. And it's what he does, not what I do. If it's my works, they're filthy, stinking rags that God says they're under the blood of Christ and gone. If it's stuff he does in me, it's eternal. And so trust. Am I going to fully trust in him? With no other hope, no other thought of anything else possibly being what is going to get me through. And sometimes that means we make a lot of bad decisions and we have to come back to where we're supposed to be with our tail between our our legs and saying, wow, I wasted so much time, so many dollars, so much effort doing the wrong thing. Now I've got to waste so much time, so many dollars, so many, so much effort to get back to where I'm supposed to be. Elisha, Elijah runs from Jezebel, 120 miles, and God's question is, what are you doing down here? You're supposed to be up there. Well, I'm the only prophet that's serving you. No, God, I've got, I've got, I've got thousands. Get back where you're supposed to be. He wasted time getting there. He wasted time getting back. He just ran. Yeah, well, he finally stopped and started listening to God. God basically says, you know, and this is when he gives them the, the tornado and the fire and all this, and he says, it's a still small voice you're supposed to have listened to, and then he's complaining. And he goes, I've got, I've got other people. You don't worry about it. I've got the remnant. You're not supposed to be here. Go back to where you are. So he had to go back 120 miles and you've got to think, on foot, 120 miles is a long trip. Okay. Now, it indicates that he ran the first time. Okay. And I don't know how long it took him to run 120 miles. And I don't know that he ran, I don't know that he ran the whole 120 miles for all those days. But you figure, even if he ran 30 miles a day, that's still four days' worth of trip. Walking back, a good walk is 20 miles a day, usually closer to 15 miles a day. So walking back... It was six days. So he's been gone at least two weeks from where he's supposed to be, wasting six day, uh, uh, two weeks of service for God because he wasn't listening to God and went someplace he wasn't supposed to be. I've done this in my life. I've gone and spent years in the wrong place because I wasn't listening to God. Abraham spends 20 years in when he leaves the Ur of Chaldees and ends up in Haran before his father dies, he spends 20 years in the wrong place. 20 years he's supposed to be in the promised land, wandering around, touching all the promised land. And he wastes 20 years. Huh? Well, he finally got out when his father died. And even then he wasn't obedient. He took, he took Lot with him. So, because in Ur of Chaldees he was said, you go and leave your family behind. So he leaves with Sarah, Lot, his, and, and his father. And they get to Haran and say, this is a pretty good place and we're going to live here for a while. And I'm sure it was dad who probably said, I like this, we're going to live here. And being a good son, he obeyed his dad rather than obeying God and continuing to where he was supposed to be. 20 years of wasted time. How many times do we waste time <laughs> Sometimes long, maybe decades, like Abraham did, not serving God because we're not being obedient to the last thing he told us to do. And it indicates in that story that Abraham did not hear from God at all while he was in Haran because he was not obeying God. And the last thing that God told him, God told him to follow me where I tell you to go. 
and it doesn't appear that God talked to him at all for 20 years. Until he went to the until he went into the promised land until he went into the promised land where he was supposed to be. Have you ever been there where you're not where God's saying to be and it's all dry? God doesn't seem to be speaking to you because you're not where you're supposed to be. Been there. Ceiling prayers bouncing off the ceiling, reading the word and getting a little bit out of it, but nothing like what I would normally get out of it when I'd studied it, because I wasn't in the right place. And I eventually understood that I wasn't in the right place. And as a husband and father, my family suffered for being in the wrong place. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. Lord, help us to learn to just fully trust in you. Lord, if we're in the wrong place, we, and anybody listening to this in the wrong place, we ask that you touch them, teach, show them where they're supposed to be, and, and bring them back to where they're supposed to be, and, and show them how they can do it in your, mirac- your miraculous way. Lord, if there's anybody who doesn't know you and fully trust you, that they will repent from their sins and admit that they're a sinner and trust completely in your salvation and seek what you would have them to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.